Well, thank you for having uh, me here to be with you uh, today. I I know several folks here, and I'm always glad to to be here to visit. And I have my wife with me, which is a real uh, treat. I wanted to introduce Donna. If you would just stand, if if you will. Uh, Donna and I got married here in Charlotte. She's a Charlottean. And so, uh, but Donna's been so special to help uh, facilitate the mission's responsibility that I've undertaken the last 12 years. She, God has blessed her with a, a great business, and she stays at home and works very, very hard, long hours, and really has supported our family for years while I make all these trips so that the, the mission's money I get is, is able to build these churches that you see and, and do these things all over the world. And I'm very thankful uh, for what Donna has done and is doing. Uh, Also, she spends weeks at home by herself as I'm gone for three to four weeks at a time in many of these places uh, several times a year. I'm going to go ahead and show you just a few things uh, of of, uh, the mission that God has laid on my heart. And and, uh, thank the Lord that that it's your missions day. You're going to meet some great missionaries here. I would ask that you go by and pick up a prayer card. We all depend on your prayers, and many of us have prayer cards. And and we'd love for you to, to pray diligently for what God is doing this past Sunday, uh, I was in uh, Doha, Qatar, and uh, uh, right there, and of course before that for about uh, a week or so in, in the various labor camps <clears throat> where I go about twice a year, uh, Al-Fajar, Ajman, Sharjah, of course Dubai, there are several camps there, Jebel Ali camps down near Abu Dhabi, and then our ba- we baptized believers the last th- uh, three or four years uh, just off the shore of Ruiz, where some of our laborers work in, uh, in, and live in the desert behind the barbed wire. But last Sunday morning, because they have church on Fridays, of course, being an Islamic nation, that's their day off, that's their holy day. But Sunday morning, I was uh, having breakfast, uh, and then I, I met the, the fellow Monday morning as well with a Saudi and uh, of course Muslim, and he started off trying to convince me of the virtues of Islam, and I was able to answer uh, his objections, and and of course he objected mostly to Jesus being God. Uh, Jesus to them is a prophet who did not die on the cross, did not rise from the dead, but other than that, they esteem him highly. And I basically said to him, well, he's a liar and a deceitful person if, if he didn't do the things he claimed to do. And, of course, that kind of rocked him. And then talking about Abraham, whom they very deeply respect, and, uh, and I said, you know, Abraham was called by God to give a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the very mountain where Jesus one day would be crucified. And, and in fact, God spoke to him and said, I will provide myself a lamb. And I said, certainly, uh, we have every indication, even in some of the Old Testament prophets, and I quoted Isaiah, Uh, whom they respect and talk about that the one who would come would be from everlasting, the the almighty God, the Prince of Peace. So uh, great discussion last Sunday morning there at the breakfast table. And I got an email just a few days ago since I've been back. And uh, he wanted to know, he said he'd prove to me why Muhammad is mentioned in the Bible. And I thought for me, I said, now I don't think you can do that. I, as far as I know, Muhammad's not mentioned in the Bible. Well, in his email, he said, yes, he's parakletos. Well, parakletos is the Holy Spirit. And so I sent him a long email from John 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus himself explains who parakletos is. The one sent from God, the one who would be eternal, not Muhammad. And uh, so it's interesting. God always has somebody for me, it seems like, on these trips, especially in the Middle East. There are so many Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists that have no clue and are searching. And, of course, you, you read about the violent ones, don't you? But, uh, you know, there's a lot that really uh, have a need. And so I'm thankful I can be over there. And let me just show you a few things about what God is doing. You can rejoice in. You, uh, Pitts Baptist Church has supported me for several years uh, to do these various things, and I'm very thankful. I, I, God burdened my heart in 2007. I was on my way to Pakistan. You'll see a little bit about that ministry in a moment. And I'm so glad you young people are here today. I seldom am in a church where it's so filled with young people. And, you know, when I was just a, a young boy, I surrendered my life to missions. And I trust that God will just show you through some of these things that maybe he would like one or two of you uh, to be the next missionaries. Of course, I grew up in Africa. When I was just a small boy, uh, my parents were missionaries in the Belgian Congo. That's If you look at the map of Africa and you put your finger in the middle, that's where I spent four years in the jungles as a little boy growing 
growing up and knowing all about the, the, the snakes, mambas that we've even found in our house and different things. But that's another story. But uh, it, great to see young people in this service. And I surrendered my life as a missionary when I was just 13 years old. And, uh, but anyway, go, going back here, God burdened my heart for the laborers. 300,000 laborers from Pakistan, India, uh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bang Bangladesh. They're all there in, uh, in, in UAE and also, as I saw over in Qatar, getting ready for the World Cup of, I think it's 2020 or 2021. And so they've been over there, and here you see them rappelling down a huge building, and there are many buildings in Dubai, and they're washing windows as they go down. And I, I think, my goodness, I'm glad I don't have to do that for a living. But uh, they're there. They're, they come to work in jumpsuits at 5 in the morning. They board a bus out in the desert behind the barbed wire. They're, they're brought in. They're dumped off to whatever job they are. Of course, they're wearing jumpsuits because the government won't let them infiltrate into society. Their, their families are at home. They work, they, they, they sleep, and they eat, and they send money home uh, to their, their mates that are raising their children. So everywhere you look, or that God at least focused my eyes for the first few years of this ministry, I would see uh, the gangs of guys in there working. And so uh, with a national, as I always do in these restricted countries, God put me in, in with a, a great a guy, a businessman, speaks great English. And so for the last seven years, uh, he and I have been going into the labor camps. Of course, he goes every week, and I just join them twice a year uh, in order to preach and teach and disciple some of our converts. So this is a typical labor camp. There are well, not thousands of them. There are hundreds of labor camps with about 10,000 uh, men, give or take, in each, scattered all over the desert, all over the UAE. You go in through the gate, and uh, there they are. The they live in the trailers, little window air conditioner. It was 115 degrees every day while I was out there last week, and at night, 95. So they have to have window air conditioners in their little units. And uh, you can see the, the middle guy I want to draw attention to. Well, I just, uh, I'm going to turn back. Let's see. There he is. There. Um, I, I want to just show this. This is Ahmed Shah, one of our first Muslim converts. He and his brother got saved about four years ago. And I want to tell you a story about him in just a little while. But uh, he's in that labor camp. This is Shafiq, the businessman that, that I met in 2007. And we began uh, doing this labor camp ministry. He's still doing it today. He works about 10 hours a day. And then every night uh, he goes uh, to a different labor camp all over Dubai. Now we have a graduate from our Bible college in Pakistan. He's over there helping him. So the ministry is really going great. Within the labor camps, they go to mosque. They have their meetings. Uh, here's a labor camp as I pass by to go to our Christian meeting that night, our Bible study, passed by these guys bowing to Mecca. I turned and took a couple flash pictures and hope they didn't mind. Not, not a one of them bothered me, so, so uh, I was able to do that. Now, they were intent on their worship uh, turning towards Mecca. I had brought me, on, on this occasion, I had brought a friend, uh, Kevin Kiswani, a converted Muslim. He lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, grew up in Jordan, a Muslim. He came over here at the age of 20 and 21 and went to a Baptist church, and guess what? Those, those people showed him love. They didn't just meet him at the door and kind of, you know, Middle Eastern guy, get away from him. No, they showed him love. And while he was a convicted Muslim and he wanted to prove to the, the people in the church that they were wrong and he was right, much like the guy last Sunday, pretty soon he softened when he saw that this is a God of love. This is a group of people who really cared about him. And he's, a, he's serving, been serving the Lord now, went to Pensacola Christian College, met his wife there. They've got three kids, live in Chattanooga. And so I brought him with me last year into the labor camps. You should have seen those laborers as they just focus because they live in a world where, where they're told you don't ever convert from Islam. In fact, if you do, it will kill you. I mean, that's just the unwritten rule. And you know what? He can't, Kevin can't go with me back to Jordan when I go to Jordan because uh, his, he has family members who would try to do just that. And I could, I could continue to talk for several minutes of people that I've had a chance to lead to Christ, Muslims, who are being persecuted right now by their families, including uh, this man right here, John Paul. This is Ahmed Shah and his brother Kamran is seated beside him. And for four years, they would attend our Bible studies just growing in the Lord after their conversion. And you see how they've marked up their Bibles. They would stay after the meeting was over and quiz us with questions because they just wanted to know more about the Word of God. That's how you can tell conversion's real, when someone wants to grow, someone wants to be discipled, someone wants to know what's really, what really the Bible's all about. But you know, I was there in March uh, in, on my way to Pakistan, had this meeting, talked with them, and as I was coming back from Pakistan on my way home in March, I was told that 
Ahmed was brought into the immigration office. They tore up his visa in front of him and said, don't you ever come back. He said, and, and he knows why. is because his Muslim friends outed him. And they, they, had, they, they conspired to tell the authorities he's a convert now to Christianity. So out he went. He went back home to the Taliban area right on the Afghan border where he is from, Peshawar. And Peshawar is the lawless region of Pakistan where the Taliban tribe, the Pashtos, uh, live. And he went back there and the, he, he immediately changed his name to John Paul. Well, that made the Muslims quite mad, as you can imagine. He also changed the name of his two boys to Daniel and Philemon. That made the Muslims even worse. So the mosque, the next Friday, they declared him a, a, a dead man. And he's been running ever since this past March. And he goes here and there. And of course, my friend Asher, way over on the other side of Pakistan, has taken him in at the Bible College. And uh, uh, so he's been literally on the run, just staying with whoever uh, friends that he made early in his life that, that won't turn him in. But the good news is uh, we've come up with a plan, Asher uh, presented to me, where he's going to be uh, the security guard at our Bible college. His tribe, the Pashtos, are noted for their, their, their fighting spirit. That's why the Taliban's doing so good and has been such a thorn in our, in our side all these years because they're the fighters of, the, of that region of the world. And so they make great security guards. So our Bible college is going to employ him wink, wink, as a security guard. He'll carry a gun all night long. He'll protect the Bible college. And, they, of course, everyone around will think he's a Muslim because that's what Muslims do. His tribe, they, they're security guards. But what he's going to do during the day is he's taking courses because he knows the Lord. So, you know, just pray for him. I have so many people all over America praying for John Paul. That's his new name. And we're just thrilled with what God can do. Now, Kamran, his brother with the Bible there, I just saw him last week. And Kamran also has has been transferred to an Abu Dhabi labor camp because of his faith in Christ. And his next move is the same thing if he doesn't be quiet. So, but we, we found him. Of course, with tel telephones now, you can find people in that camp. We took him to our baptism, and uh, he went down into the water. Uh, he, was still, he still didn't actually participate in the baptism, but he was right there, and I feel like he soon will be uh, involved. I also, for those who cannot read, I bring in these solar-powered New Testaments so they have something to listen to in their language. And uh, this is the third year that I've been able to baptize on the shores facing Iran, uh, behind me, Saudi Arabia. And on the shores right there, uh, we are able to baptize believers. And what a joy it was. There's Kamran, who's now, I mean, uh, Ahmed, who's now John Paul. Uh, this time, I don't have pictures of it. His brother was in the water there uh, with the baptism. And there they are. So I trust that uh, they'll remain in your prayers, Kamran, and of course now John Paul, brothers that really are in trouble because of their converting to Christ. We've had a ministry there in Pakistan. I, I began uh, working with uh, a, a young man named Asher Shazad, a, a convert uh, that, that started a Bible college ministry. I've been working there since 2005. And since then, look at all those X's. Those are the churches that we planted with graduates of our Baptist Bible College in Lahore, Pakistan. And uh, one way over there in the desert near the Afghan border, and uh, several of the others w near the India border. And we've now built uh, seven, build uh, see, seven buildings, and we're working on the next building. And so we praise the Lord for that. Pastor Asher's in the center in the glasses, and, uh, and the, the, so these are some of the church planter graduates. Uh, many of them have good, strong churches, and we've been able to build them uh, actual buildings because God's people have supplied that great need. Now, this is the archway. You can see the cross on the top. Uh, Pakistan is a Muslim nation, 97% Muslims, and so the Christians tend to gather together in what we call enclaves, little Christian communities, because of their fear of Muslims. And you, if you pay attention to the news uh, from that area, you know that um, quite often they get discriminated against. Uh, someone says they burned the Koran, and so then they just put them uh, in the brick kiln, or they just blow them up, or whatever they do. And so the Christians tend to uh, get together in these communities. Well, I was there in March for three to four weeks. And when I left, three days later, I, I came back and on a Sunday morning, I was uh, awaking to go and, and to preach in a church like I'm doing this morning. And I got the news from Asher that two suicide bombers had entered that gate 
came down to our Bible college, and before they got to our Bible college, uh, there was a huge gathering of, of Catholics outside a Catholic church. They blew themselves up, and it was in the news back there in March. If you pay attention to CNN News and things like that, you read about it, and a hundred people or more were either killed or sent to the hospital because of the nails that flew out of those two guys' bombs. Of course, they blew themselves to bits in the process. And so um, that, that, that tells you about the conditions, even in a Christian neighborhood, two suicide bombers went through that gate and, and, and uh, one Sunday morning in March. And Pastor Asher and his wife were just coming out of church. There is the Bible college building that God has provided. Uh, over the last three or four years, we've been able to see God bring in funds from people I don't even know, I've never met. They say, I want to help build that Bible college. Now we've got two floors, we've got uh, 25 students there, and it also is a church for that whole neighborhood, and that church is packed. I've already preached uh, to those people uh, already uh, just this past March. And so God's given us a beautiful building. And so now John Paul, the Muslim convert from UAE, is now going to be the security guard making sure that uh, suicide bombers and, and other people don't get, get near us uh, to do the damage that possibly they could do. So isn't God good? Isn't that interesting the way he works uh, by, by God's people praying? And uh, this is what it looks like on the outside. They even allow us, the government does, to put the words Baptist Church and all the churches that we've constructed. And uh, these are our recent graduates. Four of them are out planting churches. Now we do face persecution. Often Muslim mobs can erupt from a, just somebody can say, listen, this person blasphemed Muhammad. And they don't even have to check it out. They don't even have to have evidence. All of a sudden, a mob will form and trouble will ensue. That's the kind of country it is. As I'm preaching around the country, I'm often guarded by guys. You can see their guns right there. I don't know what kind of guns uh, they are, but uh, whenever I come back from preaching uh, or come down from the pulpit and go outside after the service is over, uh, this is quite common to see that somebody's been guarding uh, the whole time. This is our first church that we built. As you can see, the date of 2010, the Muslims broke down the front wall, but we built it back up again. Pastor Bobber did, and today this is it. And he's even got a sign out front, Ambassador of Christ Baptist Church. That tells you one thing, that is, if they know you're not intimidated, then they'll respect you. And so we just went ahead believing God wanted us to, to have this building built. We built the building. I preached in it about three or four times since it's been built. And since then, we've got about six or seven other churches that we're building, always full of people. Now, they don't sit on pews. They don't sit on chairs. Their custom is if they've got a carpet, that's all they want is just to sit right there on the carpet. And uh, there they are out in the cold. Uh, Bobber has also started a church on this rooftop. I was preaching there in March. And people are attending and just give you an idea of how church life is. Most of our churches have had no shelter. You see the baptistry in the back? I like to see a baptistry in Pakistan. That makes me feel good, knowing all the opposition they have, and yet they're, 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 they're serving the Lord and doing what God requires. They live in very poor neighborhoods. You can, can you imagine those little boys are, are playing alleys? And you remember how you as a little boy used to play alleys in some nice clean place your mother wouldn't dare put you in front of a cesspool? You know, that's somebody's front yard. I just ate dinner in that building and came out and took a picture right there because, the, you know, when, when they go to the... I'm trying not to be too um, uh, gross with you this morning, but when they go to the bathroom, there's a little tile on the floor and there's a little hole and that hole goes from the PVC pipe out of their front yard. And that's the kind of neighborhoods where we have our churches and where we're ministering. Because you see, the Christians are at the lowest scale on the hierarchy. I mean, to be a Christian in Pakistan means you're a nobody. And nobody wants you to be anything. And you don't get the jobs. The Muslims get the jobs. But you know what? God asks us to care even about the Muslims, right? But it's difficult for our Christian people. Here they are, just children. She's That one back there is eating from a plate, walking past the front yard. You think about how pristine your front yards are. This is life in, the, in what we call the third world, not just Pakistan, but India and all the places I go. I'll be in, in uh, the northern Thailand near the Laos border preaching to pastors in, in that country that's restricted. You can't go as a missionary to Laos. You can't go as a missionary to India. But as a tourist, I can go in and work with national pastors and help them and preach for a week or two or three and then come out, help them build churches, help them build Bible colleges, but they're the ones that do the work. Now, we are joking this morning about uh, this is how they cook. They, don't, they can't afford electricity. They're not legally barred from cutting trees for wood. The only wood they can get is what they can scrounge, something that's fallen and dead. And so they end up 
Go, I've seen many a grandmother go behind cows, patting uh, the dung into cow patties, put them out in the sun for two days. Sometimes they stick them on the walls. And you can see, I think, in the background, some, some ones sticking on the walls. And this is what they use. And I've eaten many a meal just like that lady was fixing, just like that, uh, cooked over cow dung. This is in that same neighborhood. There's our Baptist church. Uh, for the, to the glory of God, we're, we're, we've seen uh, several of these Baptist churches that we planted and now have a building. And it's so good to have these people out of the uh, outside and into a place where they can worship the Lord, just like you do. You, you wouldn't want to meet in somebody's front yard for five or six years in a row. It'd get old after a while. Well, it's the same there. And I'm thankful that we can build them church buildings. We, down in the desert, down where the camels are, uh, literally, uh, this church was built with families that live in caves. That's exactly where they live. And you know, it gets 115, 120 degrees during the day. So that cave is pretty cool, actually. That's why they build them that way. And this is our construction project. Instead of a big truck bringing the bricks, we got a big camel bringing the bricks over there. And uh, th But this, I had the joy in March of dedicating this new church in the desert, the Tai Nuri Baptist Church, full of people. Some Muslims came. There's a, they have a great testimony in that particular village among the Muslim people. There are some Muslim ladies back in there. Once again, they don't, they don't uh, you know, they're not supposed to tell people if they come to a meeting, but they, they sneak in because they're hungry to know the truth and, and they're not satisfied with what they're being told. So uh, this is the kind of thing we're doing. Uh, this is a church that, uh, that we just finished building. It's our most recent church. It's now finished. We painted the inside. And as I finish speaking, there's some Muslims you can see on the, on the, uh, on the wall there on the right side, uh, some with their hats on. They're working the sound system. They heard the gospel that night. And afterwards, I was greeted by four policemen this time in the, in the village area of Kasur. Uh, below Lahore, and, and I said, well, why is there so many policemen around with guns? And they said, you remember at Christmas time, this couple that was thrown in the brick kiln, that is the fiery furnace, basically, where they burn the bricks because they said they blasphemed the prophet Muhammad. This is the village. And so that's why they were guarding me so carefully uh, in that particular location. It doesn't take much to inflame mobs of Muslims uh, who would defend the prophet Muhammad and they don't need it much evidence for it. And they, they go crazy. And the police and the fire department, they just stand back and watch because they don't intervene. This is our, our, our project that right now that's the, the land, but it is, the building is up. It is not finished. There's still electric to do, still painting, still inside work. But this is our latest church building, and the pastor there is in the white shirt. Uh, he led a Catholic priest to the Lord about five years ago, and that Catholic priest had a building that he has allowed his church to meet in for the last five years. He baptized that Catholic priest. That Catholic priest is a member of his church, but now they have their own building. I'll tell you what's happened is the Catholic priest, or used, the former Catholic priest is now in his mid-80s. He's ready to die, and his children are fighting over that piece of property. So we, of course, had to find our own church, and just as well, we've got this church and that land. So God's doing some great things in Pakistan. I'm um, in, in India next, in the end of October. Uh, so you see the neck near Bhutan, Bangladesh, Myanmar. I'm, I'm going to be in that whole area going in and out of those countries, Nepal. Some of those are restricted countries. One time I was going into Bhutan. I have pictures, but, but, but I'm just going to quit right now. But uh, into the Buddhist kingdom of Bhutan. There about an hour, we we're looking around, and pretty soon we were escorted out of there because they, they realized that we didn't have a guide. Some of these countries, they want you to have a government guide, and what they're really saying is, we know you're a Christian, and we know you're going to tell our Buddhist people about Christ, so we want to make sure there's a government guide with you so that you don't do that. So, but, you know, God is good. We're getting some opportunities uh, to witness to some of these people. Into Myanmar, we started churches. It's a restricted country, not supposed to have churches in Myanmar. We've got several churches. even helped to build a church uh, last year for one of our guys. So I just wanted you to know God is mightily at work in even parts of the world that we wouldn't suspect. That's why we need to get on, uh, on board about missions because I believe we're living in the last days. I really do. The last days of the church, I believe the trumpet's going to sound very soon. And you know what? Jesus is not, he said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you'll turn with me uh, to the, uh, the book of Acts, I want to just preach a, a short message on missions and just leave you with something from God's word. We know the Great Commission. It's a wonderful verse in Matthew 28. We know Acts 1.8 and appreciate so much that 
emphasis on those verses, but let me have you turn to some of the other verses that talk about missions, and I want to speak about just some issues regarding our churches and how we can be involved in God's plan and purpose for missions. First of all, the purpose of missions in Acts chapter 26 and verse 17. Paul is appearing before King Agrippa, and he is saying, he has given his personal testimony of how Christ Jesus came into his life. The one he was persecuting, the one he was locking up all the believers, just like what our modern day opponents of Christianity try to do. And Paul was doing it, and now he was explaining how Jesus Christ himself appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Down in verse 17, he says, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. I'm glad to be able to show you some pictures and tell you some stories of people who have been have had their eyes open, Ahmad Shah, who is now John Paul. I mean, he's turned from darkness, the darkness that would have led him to an eternal hell, to the light of the glorious gospel, just as the apostle Paul had experienced. I delight in being able to go to these countries and see people who used to be Buddhists, who used to be Hindus, who used to be Protestants, who used to be Catholic, but they're born again by the Spirit of God, and they're changed, and their eyes are open. That's missions. Missions is converting lost souls bound for a Christless eternity so that they can know the blessing of eternal life with Jesus Christ. You know, it's a life-changing gospel that we're carrying. Seeing people turn to God from darkness to light, I think about India, how India used to be, and going back to William Carey, the first Baptist missionary to India. He labored long and hard, and, and he didn't get many results. Neither did Adoniram Judson in Burma and Myanmar, where I'm, uh, I've been so many times into that country. Uh, they labored so hard for converts, but William Carey got so distressed with this one Hindu custom. This one Hindu custom that uh, was that, that when a, a, a man would die, they would put his dead body on a funeral pyre made of wood. Then they would put his living wife, strap her down on that same funeral pyre, shove it into the Ganges, put a torch under it, and you'd hear her scream all the way down the Ganges River. That was happening for centuries in India. But it bothered William Carey so badly that he beseeched the authorities. Of course, Britain was pretty much in charge in those days. and They leaned on the, on the, uh, the, you know, the top people of, the, uh, of, of that nation, India, the, the governing nation, and they, they kept saying, listen, you can't do this. You can't kill those innocent people. Of course, they believed that the spirits had to go together to be you know, reincarnated together. And you know, I don't have all the, their doctrines down pat. Some of you may know more than I do about Hinduism. But, you know, that's what they believed. For centuries they did that. But you know what? The light of the glorious gospel finally broke through. And, you know, they quit that practice in the early, I believe, 1900s or late 1800s. They don't do that anymore. Now, they still, India is still very Hindu. In fact, the new prime minister is so pro-Hindu that we're now experiencing persecution. I'll be there in a couple months, and, and I, the, the national guys that I work with have said that it's going to be very difficult now. In fact, I, I, in my last visa application, they sent me a form and told me what I could and couldn't do as far as preaching and teaching in that country. So it's going, it's reverting back. But, but the good news is that practice, that dark practice is now no more. I remember, as I told you, growing up in the Belgian Congo, and one of the practices in the jungles was when a woman had twins, they believed the, the, the babies were of the devil, so they would wrap the twins in banana leaves and leave them out in the jungle for the marauders, and it was very quick to make short work of innocent babies in the middle of a jungle. They believed that. But you know what? Once the, the missionaries came and the glorious gospel of salvation came, they didn't do that anymore. I'm saying that I could multiply the stories to tell you that, listen, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into a, a pagan nation, things change. Praise the Lord. People get saved, but also the nation gets their eyes open and the tribes and, 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 and the people that practice dark arts. You know, tragically, it looks like here in America, you know, the opposite is seeming to happen. Our hearts are being darkened, but that's another story for another time. But the gospel will turn darkness to light. Maybe you're here this morning, and, 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 and you, you just, 
you just have a need in your life because you practice things and you know the, the conviction of God in your life, what you're doing is wrong and you're destroying your life and you may not be doing the heinous things I'm talking about, but you know things are not right in your life. Listen, when you know the saving power of Jesus Christ and you accept Him as your Savior, you, all your sins are forgiven. He fills you with the Holy Spirit of God, gives you eternal life, adopts you into His family. Uh, he, he, all of that He'll do for you and you'll have a changed life and a new perspective. And many of you could give testimonies of how you were turned from darkness to light by the gospel. Now, young people, that's the task God gave us. He said, I want you, Paul, and therefore to all, he gave it to all the disciples, go into all the world. Get that gospel to people. Look, God doesn't have a plan B. It's not like God's going to say, well, you know, you guys aren't doing so good, so I'll just go ahead and save them anyway. He's not going to do that. That's his plan. But he needs somebody to go and carry out that plan. Let me just read you a poem that has been on my heart for many years, written by a New Tribes mission, missionary to Papua New Guinea, Ruth Naldret. She says this, They said they couldn't go. They had a house to buy. It was their dream house, and they wanted to enjoy it for just a few years. So they waited. But the old jungle grandma didn't. She grew deaf and eventually died. She never heard the gospel. No one went to tell. She just died and went to hell forever. He said he couldn't go. He'd studied long for his degree. It only made good sense to teach at the university where they would appreciate his knowledge and at least wait a few years. So he waited, but the young Indian man didn't. While out hunting honey and trees, he fell, hit his head, lingered shortly, and died. He never heard the good news. No one went to tell. He just died and went to hell forever. He said he couldn't go. Foreign language wasn't his thing. He'd only make a fool of himself and be laughed at. He would work on his self-confidence and maybe he would be called later. So he waited. The old witch doctor didn't. While trying to communicate with the spirits, he got into such a state he had a heart attack and died. He never heard the good news. No one went to tell. He just died and went to hell forever. She said she couldn't go. It wouldn't be right to take the children so far from their grandchildren or grandparents. And she couldn't bear not seeing her folks regularly. Maybe later when the kids were grown. So she waited. But the pregnant tribal woman didn't. A poisonous snake bit her and in minutes she died. She never heard the good news. No one went to tell. She just died and went to hell forever. What if God had not so loved us that he gave us all? What if Jesus had been unwilling to give his life? You and I would just be doomed to die and go to hell forever. He is not willing that any should perish. That's the motive. That's the purpose for missions. We have the glorious gospel given to us. We know it, but we're supposed to share it. And if we wait, somebody will be perishing and going to hell. Some of those people would respond if we could get the gospel to them in time. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, talk about the plan. What is God's plan of, get, of missions, getting the gospel around the world? Well, Paul speaks of it here in, in verse uh, 19. He says, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written... To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. There are still countries in this world that need to be reached with the gospel. I have the privilege of going to some of those, Myanmar and Qatar and Laos and Bhutan. You can't send missionaries to go in there and live and, and apply for their religious visa. They won't let you go into those countries. But you know, there's ways as a businessman or, or ways as a traveler that you can go and take tracks to those people. And when you sit down with them at, at, in different places, many of them will speak English. There are ways, and we should take advantage of those ways that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God's plan is for us to take the gospel where Christ was not named. Now, I'm thankful for all the missions projects that d d deal with North America. That's great. But you know what? Is it fair that we spend so much time and money in North America while there's countries of this world where the gospel's not going? No, we need to pay attention that, that God's plan is to take the gospel around the world to the unreached. Paul says that to the, those who've never heard, that's where I want to go. Well, could God be raising up a young person here today to take the gospel to some of these places? 
I, I believe he wants the gospel to go into some of these impenetrable areas. And then once you get in there, you realize that they're not so impenetrable. Nothing is impenetrable when you think about who's sending you on that mission to go. And so we need to have people of courage in this day and age to say, I will go to these places. Maybe for some it will be as a soldier over to Iraq. You know, I believe some of our soldiers have left lasting impressions upon Iraqis. I believe some of the, our soldiers are the reasons why some of these people say, listen, if I could just get to Europe and maybe get to America, if I could just get somewhere and escape all this killing. So you, 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 maybe you're a computer expert and God would send you over to that part of the world and you'd have business over there for a week or two. Take tracks. Be God's messenger. Listen, those Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, most of them really don't believe what they're being told. I mean, can you believe what some of the, these religions teach? It's, 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 it's implausible to, the, the, you know, to the, the least extent to a human mind. But that's all they know. So let's get out there. You know, some of us have internet skills. We can, we can, we can get on, make our own website. And you realize some of these people around the world are really coming to, to, to get information about Jesus Christ from websites in America. They're so hungry. Somebody could do that. But we need to get the gospel around the world to the people that haven't heard. Secondly, God's plan is, in verse 25, but now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. We know from Acts 11 that Jerusalem had a famine. And the poor saints had already sold their homes, right? And pooled all their money together. They had nothing. Now the famine was wreaking havoc. And Paul, in his generous heart, went to the churches of, Ma of Macedonia, Philippi and Thessalonica, went to Corinth and said, I want to take an offering to help these poor saints. And you know, many of these missions organizations right here, that's their burden. There's a community that needs help. There's a disaster somewhere. Let's help these people. Oh, how many people have come to Christ because somebody, disaster team, went at the time that those people needed it the most. You know, I wish in Hungary that there were people meeting them with this, with this food cart. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be wonderful if, if when these Syrian people were coming into Hungary, there were born-again believers who believed that this was a tragedy, they needed to do something about. Instead, what do we see on our cameras? <laughs> Get them out of here. We don't want anything to do with these people. Put up walls and fences. We need to take advantage, as many, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear from them this afternoon, of, of terrible situations and how Jesus Christ can meet that need. And, and you, your church obviously is in, involved in these disaster reliefs. That's part of God's plan. And Paul addressed that right there. Now, what's the provision? Well, we see that in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is that great passage about salvation where he says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the question, How then shall they call upon Him they have not, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? That's what churches do. Churches send missionaries to these places or else they'll never hear the gospel unless somebody is sent. And that's the role of the churches. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Well, th there are several scriptures that indicate that it's churches that, that do this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at the way he put this. Churches are the ones sending missionaries. There is nobody else to send them. It's churches. And in Romans chapter, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this in verse 8, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. Can you see Paul coming to, coming to a church and robbing the church? That's what he said. He said, I robbed, not, not in the sense of coercing them against their will or taking something that they didn't know, but he was being very blunt by saying, listen, when I come to your church, I'm coming to get money from you. Oh, we don't like that when someone says that. That's not very subtle. That's not very nice. But that's what missionaries do. We're robbers. We come to churches by saying, listen, there are souls that need to be saved. Your churches are supposed to send. 
That's what we got to do. Paul said, I robbed him. To do what? Verse 9, when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man, he's telling the Corinthians. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. Who were those brethren? They were Epaphroditus and Titus sent by Philippi and Thessalonica with offerings to meet their needs and to carry on the mission work around the world. That's God's plan. He could have chosen to do it differently. He's God. But he chose to allow churches to invest in missionaries to take the gospel to the people that have not heard. What a joy it is. I've had the joy of giving to missions as a member of a Baptist church for many, many years. My favorite thing is to fill out my tithe and then add to it my missions offering. And that's a biblical concept. Um, uh, Turn with me uh, to 2 Corinthians 8. And, you know, sometimes I teach on the whole chapter. Sometimes it'll take two two, uh, messages to to get through 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But let me just share the the highlight of verse verse, uh, 8 says, I speak not by commandment, by, by the occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. You know, there's nowhere else in the Bible that words such as that are found. We prove the sincerity of our love for Jesus by what? If you look at the context, giving to missions. Oh, I thought we'd prove our sincerity by singing hymns. No. Or by singing in the choir. No. Or by volunteering at the soup kitchen. No. According to the Word of God, we prove the sincerity of our love by giving to the thing that matters most on God's heart, and that is souls. That is missions. That's reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11, he says, Now therefore perform the doing of it. He's talking to them through those whole two chapters about their missions offering. That as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. And notice verse 14. He says, this is, this is a, the, um, a philo- the philosophy of why we're sharing with others. But by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want. That their abundance also may be a supply for your want. That there may be equality. You know, I travel all over the world. I see how people go to church. I see where they go to church. Many of them outside many of them on a tarp, many of them sitting on a bare floor, many of them sitting in mud huts. And I think then, I, then I'm preaching, whenever I'm not over there, I'm preaching all over North America and I see the beautiful facilities. And then I look at that verse and God says that there may be a quality. <laughs> it's not happening, folks. How is it possible that we get to worship the Lord in our beautiful spots and we don't really help those people who's coming together to worship the Lord to help them better their situation. It says if you have an abundance, then you have an obligation. Do we have an abundance? Then we have an obligation. Yes, the gospel, seeing people saved, that's paramount. But listen, we, ca- we cannot just give the gospel to people who have nothing and expect them just to listen to the gospel while we don't help them. I make no apologies for building those churches in Pakistan and Myanmar and India and all over. I'll, I'll build as many as I can for people who absolutely cannot afford to do it. And most of the places I go, when they give their tithes and then they give their offerings, we're talking about nickels and dimes. You cannot build a building on nickels and dimes. So my Bible tells me that we who are abundantly blessed have the obligation to share with those who are in need. That's part of missions. And then Paul said, I'm coming to, he told the Corinthians, I'm coming uh, because I helped plant your church. I took, I robbed churches in Macedonia so that you could have church. Now I'm coming to your church and I expect you to help me so that I can go to the regions beyond. That's exactly the message of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, keeping that in mind, look at chapter 9, verse 6. And by the way, I challenge you young people Underline all the times the word abundance or bounty or abound is found in these chapters. It'll amaze you. Verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You know that, that, that context is not about tithing. Tithing is not mentioned in that, these two, three chapters. It's about missions giving. So he's saying purpose to do it. Our missions offering ought to be well thought out. It ought to be generous. It ought to be not grudgingly. It ought to be given cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver, and it's not talking in terms of your tithe to your local church. That's expected of you. Much like when you, you know, remember back in those days when you were a renter? Many of you, of course, beyond that, but you remember your rent was expected. 
You couldn't just say to your landlord, I'm a little short this month, let me bake you cookies. Well, cookies are nice, but rent was due. That's the way I look at tithes and offerings. They're due. How, God is a great God. How can we shortchange God? Now, above that, he says, let's purpose to give cheerfully and bountifully. And look at the promise, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. How can you lose when you give purposely to missions? God promises you to bountifully bless you. Now let's go over to Philippians, where once again he teaches us that our giving to missions pays eternal rewards. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, and uh, let me just read a couple verses here. Verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You know, we missionaries here, that's what we desire for you. Whenever we go to a church, we're not looking to increase our coffers because we're just a sieve. We just receive so we can give out. Well, what we'd like to do is, 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 is for you to be blessed by God by your giving. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I'm coming so that you can receive this blessing of fruit, the fruit that people we win to Christ will be placed on your account if you're invested in missions. Notice what he says, verse 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Paul had just received there in Rome, in that prison, a gift. I don't know what was in it, whether it was a care package, whether it was baked goods, coats, um, whether it was some money, some snacks. I don't know what was in there, but he was so thankful for it. He thanked the people of Philippi. And you know, don't you know your missionaries and the nationals that you help, when they get that little care package and some of you are involved in doing that, uh, Malawi, those poor, poor orphans, and some of you, you get, a, you know, Robbie Jones, I've known since he was just... You know, a little guy, now he's undertaking that great project out there. Don't you know there's thanksgiving for, for the, the gifts that you send through your messengers just like Epaphroditus? Imagine how hard it would have been for Epaphroditus to find the Apostle Paul. And now I know he was in a Roman prison, but back in the day when Paul was, you know, three months here and five months there and a year there and, and then in between and traveling, how would you like to be the, the one given with the task of taking the offerings from the local church of Philippi to wherever Apostle Paul was. It would have been quite a challenge. But now he's in prison, and he received an offering. He says, I'm so grateful for it. It's a sacrifice acceptable. Now look at verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That verse, quoted by every Christian I know, that thinks it's just a guarantee that God's always going to meet your needs, is only applicable in the context of missions giving. If you're an investor in missions and you give to missions to the spread of the gospel, which is the closest thing on the heart of God, which the, it was the last thing Jesus talked about, if that's what you're investing in, then you can claim this verse. My God shall supply all your need. Paul's saying, because you're generous and you're giving and you made this gift and, and I received it, it's an odor of a sweet-smelling sacrifice, I could give you a promise, God will meet your needs. I've never known someone who gave to missions who was ever wondering where their next meal was going to be. It's like David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. As long as we're contributing to what's closest on God's heart, you think he's not going to bless us? It's in the context of missions giving. And the last thing I want to draw your attention to in Romans chapter 15, here's what we can do. Of course, we can give to our missionaries. We can uh, give to the spread of the gospel. We can be witnesses around the world. <clears throat> we can minister to the poor saints. Notice prayer. Romans 15 and verse 30, now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I'm asking God's people here, as I do everywhere, would you strive? I mean, don't, don't just go, Lord, bless the missionaries today. Please don't do that. I don't think that's a valid prayer. Lord, bless the missionaries today. You, you haven't strived. You haven't, you haven't even considered who the missionaries are or where they are or what they're doing or the soul. No, no, we've got to do better than that. that. That's not striving. Striving means to agonize over people that you support and you're asking God to move in a special way that day. That's what God's looking for. People who will strive with us in prayer. 
We missionaries that go to some of these dangerous places, it's so great when I go to my home church and I have people, you know, I pray for you almost every hour of the day. When in the middle of the night, I get up and pray for you. Oh, wow, that's exciting because it, 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 it reminds me that it's because of them that, 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 that the hedge is even stronger about me wherever I go. Your missionaries need to know that. They need to know that you're not, Lord, bless the missionaries. No, pray. Take prayer cards. You know, you can't pray for all the missionaries, but you can pray for five of them. You can pray for two. You can pray for three. And during the day, and, and, and think about them and say, God, help them, and read their prayer letters and find out what they're doing and care about what they're doing. That's what Paul's asking, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. You know, he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, uh, about this, the same thing, this issue of prayer. He says, you know, there are wicked people that oppose us. And I want to tell you, there are people, when they find out uh, that what we're doing, they, they would love for us to be dead. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. There's some unreasonable and wicked men out there that are opposing what we're doing around the world. That's why we need your prayers. So I'm asking you, as you're considering missions today, could you do more about giving? Could you do more about praying? Could you do more about investing in maybe unreached places in the world? Could you maybe, maybe God would use you. Maybe there's a young person. Maybe there's a young couple that would surrender today. Say, God, I'll go where you want me to go, like that song we just sang. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I was 13 years old. And I went forward to tell God I would do whatever he wanted me to do. I would go wherever he wanted me to go. I've never regretted that. Oh, there's been a few years when I thought I would get my, you know, I, and I did get my master's degree at UNCC. And I thought I'd just be a mathematician. That wasn't what God wanted me to be. Because you see, at 13, I said, God, I'll go where you want me to go. And I wonder if there's some young people here today, maybe a married couple. And you've not done that yet. You're still digging in, still feeling like I got skills, I want to develop, I got a career, I got talents. And you may have, but God may want you to use those talents to maybe talk to a Buddhist somewhere over there and really, you know, use your intellect and God's power of blessing to win that soul to Christ. Would you be willing to do that? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe the piano would be able to play an invitation song. I'm going to call the pastor to come. Would you consider giving your life as a missionary? And it may not be a missionary like what I'm talking about. It may be a different kind of a missionary to a different kind of a place. You just got to be willing to say, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do, Pastor.